Hi, everyone. How are you doing? Thanks for coming out. Such an a, a inclement turn of Melbourne's weather. Yay, Melbourne. Um, before we start, let's just remember where we are. Uh, this is the land of the Wiradjuri people, the Kulin Nation. Yeah? And let's sort of pay our respects to elders past and present. Okay, so tonight we have uh, four really very, very interesting people to talk about leading art and design practice. Uh, before we get started, my name is Jeremy Yule. I'm the Master of Design Futures uh, leader at here at RMIT University. And our first speaker tonight uh, comes to us from the United States, uh, from a marketing and product design background, uh, but is now working for one of our larger corporate professional services firms, thinking about how she might be able to infuse design through the, through the organisation. Um, this is a theme we're going to hear a bit more about tonight. Okay, so, so Maureen Thurston has consulted with a wide, wide range of different organisations around design. Um, most surprisingly to me, and interestingly to me, was with the um, Art Centre College and thinking about education and um, has had some, something to do there with their INSEAD MBA program, which is a very interesting program as well. Yep. Um, Maureen was with Second Road, one of those kind of leading design consultancies in Australia that was really, has been looking at uh, strategic design and design into fields that are adjacent to the things that we normally think of as design for quite a while, and is now the uh, well, leader of design at Deloitte. Yeah? Um, so could you please help me in welcoming Maureen Thurston? Thank you. on by now, yes? So, thank you very much, Jeremy. I appreciate that. It is a real pleasure to be here today because nothing makes me happier than to, one, talk about design, my personal favorite subject, and my husband of 30 years says I bore him tediously <laughs> because of my enthusiasm and passion about design because there's so many things in the world that need to be designed better. <laughs> So the, this is my perfect subject and the type of people that uh, Jeremy had told me was going to be in the room today, so current students, future students, but I believe no matter what our age are, we are all students of trying to understand how to make things better and doing it from a design context. So one of the things um, in my early conversations about this event was to talk about whether or not it was an evolution, all the stuff that's going on around design, if it's an evolution of things or is it a revolution? So I'm curious, because we're going to be touching on this back and forth, how many here think that all of the changes going on is actually there's a revolution of design going on? Like a real revolution. Yeah? Revolution? Okay. Rest of you are all evolution? Yeah? Okay. The rest of you don't know? Okay. <laughs> Some of you don't care? Yeah? Okay. <laughs> One of the reasons I, I want to challenge the, the thinking around the evolution revolution is because there is quite a few things happening. 
So when you think about evolution in and of itself, the word is around this gradual sense of things that are, that are changing, the way that, that the gradual development of things that are new. But you take it one step farther, it's this overthrowing of a social order, so overthrowing of the thinking of the way things have always been done. And frankly, as far as I'm concerned, if you are a good designer, you're a bit of an anarchist, you're a bit of a revolutionary, and sometimes you just live in the dark, <laughs> as we are right now. <laughs> but to that end, thank you. Um, but what I'd want to do is just kind of flip back and forth. So Jeremy had mentioned the INSEAD program. So even five years ago, I think it's fairly safe to say that most of those business schools, and this is the, the top 10 from the uh, 2015 and financial, um, financial Review, most of them, except for Columbia, poor Columbia, have some kind of relationship with a design school, have some kind of relationship with a design program, or are trying to embed it as a capability inside of their, uh, inside of their institution. You made reference to the INSEAD program. I launched the INSEAD Art Center program back in 2005. So all of the new things that are happening with the, um, with the different design initiatives with, between business schools and the conversations that are starting to happen actually have been started quite a few years ago, even before I launched the program with, with INSEAD. What was interesting about the INSEAD Art Center program was I took a group of my industrial designers. I used to teach design management and design leadership. I'm an industrial designer. And taught them pretty much all those students everything I never learned in design school, which could have been a master's course in and of itself. Um, but it was around taking eight of my industrial designers and embedding them in 800 MBAs in Fontainebleau, France. And we did that in 2005. When I was looking at the students that I was going to take with me, I ended up taking a, uh, looking at their portfolios, of course, and I had lots of applicants, but I had to whittle it down to eight people. Lots of really talented people, but what I was looking for, portfolio was important, but they had to have an enormous amount of internal fortitude because we were, again, eight industrial designers, 800 MBAs. <laughs> they were coming in and talking about problem solving with two completely different languages. And without having that internal fortitude, the, the ability to draw and design was actually not going to survive because it would have been overrun. So it was their, their, their self-confidence and their ability to stand toe-to-toe -to -toe with the MBA students and talk about what was valuable to the contribution of design that I needed to make sure that they could do. So it was an interesting time. And I'm very proud to say that even though I launched it, you know, 15 years, I just went to the 10-year anniversary of where these students have landed that I uh, worked with so many years ago. So now they're running creative for Airbnb. They're working for, as designers, uh, leading design within Uber. It is fascinating what these kids have done. And one of the interesting things at the time when they were graduating, they were what we considered hybrids. They had some business background. They had some design background. They had a capability that there was no market for. There was no jobs. They had to go out and actually create their own jobs because no one knew what they needed, that type of thinking that these guys were actually doing. So it was interesting. They had to, one of their first objects of design was themselves when they entered out into the, uh, into the business market. So part of the role of my role at Second Road was I saved two of them and brought them out to Second Road to help me build a design practice inside of Second Road. Uh, I came over for six months eight years ago.
so I uh, was in the uh, into Second Road helping them for about five years or so building out their practice, but actually connecting the design to the strategy piece. So there's other things that are going on. Um, lots of conversation now about how the CEO is, is, a, uh, is a designer, a designer in chief. There's conversations about the fact that you've got a CEO for Nike. You've got Airbnb was led by, or excuse me, founded by a couple of industrial designers. Um, you've got 13, although it's small, but it's more than before, <laughs> even just a little bit ago, 13 designers that are actually working within the C-suite, within, uh, within five, Fortune 500 companies. You've got McKinsey. McKinsey, big professional services firm, just bought Lunar, an industrial design firm outside of Palo Alto. What Deloitte did about uh, three years ago was buy Doblin. I don't know if you're familiar with Doblin. They're an innovation group out of uh, Chicago, one of the premier innovation programs, um, um, and they have been doing some amazing work. Then you've got firms like uh, Flextronics back in 2004 that bought um, Interfrog, and then you had a variety of other organizations that have been purchasing design firms as a means to try to build innovation into their organization. But even at that, the, the earliest one there is 2004, 2005. In 1995, I was working with BMW and Design Works because BMW decided they needed to actually expand their own creative capability and bought Design Works, which was an industrial design studio in San Francisco. So this bridging the gap between design and business has been going on for a while. Silicon Valley. This I found was fairly fascinating. Um, Silicon Valley, within the last year, about the last 18 months or so, has actually been going through a transformation in and of itself. They've discovered design. Now you're finding that around, uh, let's see, six of the top VC firms are all hiring industrial designers. A bunch of my guys that went through INSEAD have actually ended up in the VC world. Now they're going in and creating their own hedge funds to actually make investments for design companies and design startups. It's fascinating the stuff that's going on. And it's all because designers are taking it upon themselves to start shaping and creating their own future. Design-driven companies. This is a research report that was just done um, uh, by Design Management Institute. To their reckoning and their research, the, uh, excuse me, design-driven companies outperform every other company. So it's looking at design not as a cost, but as an investment. And the importance of that differentiation from a business standpoint is huge. So what's actually going on? What is happening? So it's sort of my hypothesis is that because there's been this conversation and this need for innovation within the business sector, they've discovered that even they've been having some difficulties in figuring out how to innovate, they've discovered design. Design actually is the act of invention, and they're coming to the realization that innovation is actually an output. It's an outcome if you have the right kind of design capability to invent the product or the service, and that's fed into it. So it's looking at design as the fuel, and then innovation is almost the destination that allows you to get to there. I love the fact that uh, I'm just old enough now to remember a lot of these things, because I used to have a Sony Walkman, thank you, and I was one of the first people, and probably the only person in this room, that paid $300 for a Sony Walkman. That's how much it cost when it first came out. And what is it now, buck 99? <laughs> so I was one of those people that just paid way too much. But how was I supposed to know that they were going to create this thing called an MP3 player? There was no such thing on the horizon line at that point in time. Or even the, uh, the Kodak. I, one of my very first clients when I opened up my own firm 
was Eastman Kodak. They were toying with this idea. They had a bunch of patents around digital, and they wanted to know whether or not there was actually any opportunity. And they had identified the creative industries. You know, would they actually use, would designers use digital photography or maybe some architects? So I did a, a cross-the-country research project with my colleagues around digital within the, uh, and the usage of digital photography inside of creative industry, went back with my wonderful report, explained to all of these delightful middle-aged gentlemen that sat on this panel about how the creative industries would embrace digital and wouldn't it be a good idea if you did something about that. They all said thank you very much. They were very polite and then they just took my report and shelved it. <laughs> and we all know what happened to Eastman Kodak. That was an extremely sad moment for me because it was right then and there that I knew that something wasn't right. And I am from Rochester, New York, where Eastman Kodak comes from. That's the home of Eastman Kodak. And it was, that was sad, but the real kiss of death for me for Kodak was when I read in the newspaper that they were, having a, they were laying off their R&D department. They had about 2,500 people that they were going to give the pink slip to. They were letting all of the people, all the explorers, all the designers, all the ones who were going to help them shape the future, they were getting rid of <laughs> because they needed to make sure that the guys on Wall Street were happy. Now, that struck me. Right then and there, I sold my stock in, in Eastman Kodak. That was, the, that was the death knell as far as I was concerned. It took about another 10 years for them to finally close down, about 15 years actually, but that was the beginning of the end as far as I was concerned. So it's the investment of design that actually allows these organizations to thrive. Borders, anybody uh, hang out and, or even go to try to find a, a, a blockbuster video? Just not gonna happen. So all of these things, and the reason I'm even in Deloitte is because we recognize the fact that if we do not become the disruptors, we will be the disrupted, or disruptee, if there is such a word. So it's understanding that Things are changing, but you can either be a victim of it or you can start leading the charge around it. So when design is, is, I believe, is at this intersection, a very interesting intersection at this particular moment in time, and it has been evolving and working our way to it. So it's between the business strategy, it's the creativity and the culture, and all of that, all of that actually start, gets woven into the asset of the organization, the way they invest in design. It's there to, and leveraged in a, a variety of different ways, it's around how you go about process of inspiring and having this enterprising spirit. Okay? How do you actually start allowing the, the individuals inside of an organization to become part of the future and have a voice in it? How do you actually start envisioning what's possible, inventing new value, or even looking at creating genuine return on investment for innovation? Those are all design challenges, and designers, are, it's your role to be able to pull that off. So I was looking at the, uh, the IDEO website, and uh, Tim was talking about three of the brand new titles that they have. When I had my own students, I used to make them design their own titles before they graduated. The intent of them designing their own titles is I wanted them to live up to it. So there is a variety of design students, excuse me, uh, uh, I'm going to be going to Continuum next week, in uh, Boston, one of my guys, Brian Wen, who had a title of design envisioner. <laughs> that was what he came up for in, in, as a school project. He, when he went to, uh, Zeb, or excuse me, to continue, he said, I want to be a design envisioner. They had no idea what that was. They had never heard of it before. And they gave him the title, and there's now a whole department around design envisioners. 
So it's around genuinely shaping your future, which comes out of the way you name yourselves. So the fact that we've got design entrepreneurs now, social innovators, business designers, I was just a good old-fashioned industrial designer. I always found it fascinating, though, when I'd meet people and they'd say, so Maureen, do you like design industries? And most of the time I just said yes, because it wasn't worth the effort. <laughs> I'm trying to explain it. But the irony in all of that is now, in my role inside of Deloitte, I really am designing industries. Never thought that was going to be the case 30 years ago, because I thought I would always be designing the artifact. And wouldn't that be wonderful? So not in a million years did I, would I have ever guessed that I would be in one of the world's largest accounting firms. The other irony attached to that is not only did I flunk accounting, my accounting teacher asked me to leave the class because he said, in his words, I was hopeless, <laughs> that there was never going to be a way that I was going to get what they were doing. I said, you've got lots of lines and you've got lots of numbers, but I just don't understand this whole debit credit thing. It makes no sense to me. <laughs> so for me to be involved in working in culture change and innovation inside of Deloitte, I just get a chuckle out of it. And yes, by the way, I did get back to my accounting teacher and go, ha-ha. <laughs> um, so the journey, this evolution that Deloitte has been going through, I just thought I'd take you through uh, a real quick story around it because it's kind of interesting, not only where we've been, but where it is we we're planning on going. So we had a bit of problem, uh, 94 to 2003. We ran through six CEOs within the course of nine years. We were hemorrhaging cash. We were losing clients left and right. We couldn't keep, we had a revolving door on the front of the building simply because we couldn't keep people long enough. It was uh, considered in 2005 to be the sick puppy. It barely even made it of the top five, or excuse me, the top four. It barely made it to, you know, underneath the four. It was really, really bad. Um, they were a $460 million company, which seems like a lot, but in, by comparison to the PwCs and the rest of the firms that are out there, we were a drop in the proverbial bucket. In 2008, we had, a, or excuse me, in 2004, a new CEO came in, a new CSO, a, a chief strategy officer, and it was their job to turn this, uh, this beast around. They let go of 2,500 people pretty much within the first couple of years. That was just cleaning out and figuring out how they were going to reshape the organization. It was their goal at that point in time to move from being a fourth or like fifth on the ranking down to being number two and different. That was their goal. And everything that they did was all focused in on being in, um, about being different. But it was all driven by innovation. They spent a lot of time traveling around the world trying to figure out what this whole innovation thing was. And they spent lots of time learning and then bringing that learning back into the organization. In 2010, they spent some quality time with Roger Martin and learned about design and strategy. And then also they invested probably, no one will really admit to this, but they, to my calculations, and again, I'm not really good at math, but my calculations is around 1.23 million in design through Stanford Design School. They brought the teachers out, all the exec went over there for the boot camp. They were committed to making sure that they made a difference in trying to get this design thing embedded into the organization. A couple of years later, I joined the, joined the firm. And the reason I joined the firm is because what, the, what my good friends inside of uh, D School were doing is they were teaching a process. They were calling it design thinking, but they were teaching a process. And what the problem was inside of a firm, when you're trying to change a culture, you cannot do that through a process. You have to do it through a mindset. And you have to do it through a disposition. And how do you get people to start thinking differently about the world that they're in? 
the problem with all of the money that they invested in D-School was that they didn't actually teach them how to change the way they worked or how they interacted. They simply taught them a process. Therefore, it did not stick. So I, uh, just through a certain set of circumstances, I ended up being at uh, Deloitte talking to the CSO, and we worked it out through about pretty much over lunch. I created my own job inside of Deloitte. He endorsed it. I wrote two pages on a PowerPoint because they like to talk in PowerPoint, so I gave him a PowerPoint, and I wrote down what it was I was going to do. He said, really, are you serious? And I said, sure, I can pull this off. I was making it up as I went. Um, and they agreed, and they paid me money, and they said, okay, go forth and make it stick. And that was pretty much my charter. So the and different turned into different by design. The intent of changing the name around was the by design was not just the process, but it was the methodologies as well as the mindset, but it was also to indicate the intent that we had. This was very purposeful. We were going to be different by design, and there was a way in the methodology to do that. So going from in uh, 10 years, we went certainly to second place in, uh, in the rankings, and we've gone from the $460 million to the $1.162 billion. And the beautiful thing is when we hit the, hit the ranking, we all got a day off. Yay. I was on a holiday. That really screwed me. I didn't get a chance to use it. <laughs> um, 2015, we're now looking at design, and this is where I'm repositioning design in the organization. So being different by design is good, but now how do we actually be transformed by design? And this is where we're looking at taking a design as strategy. And now, for all practical purposes, this has been an evolution of sorts, but we're just trying to ignite the revolution inside of Deloitte as to how we're going to roll forward. The problem is it's not quite that easy. So I can stand up here and wave my arms around for the best of them, but there's a whole lot of work that's behind making this happen. So it's moving from design to strategy, which is uh, extraordinarily important, but it's around how you actually leverage design as an initiative, as an asset within the organization. So we have around 300 industrial, or excuse me, 300 designers of lots of different walks from life across the firm. That's from Perth to Darwin to Adelaide, Melbourne, and Sydney. We've got the internal practice, the creative services. Those are the traditional designers. They're the ones working in the marketing department. They have an enormous amount of talent, and they help us with uh, positioning our brand. Innovation, there's a number of designers that we have in there. They tend to be more um, not trained in design, but they're all advocates of innovation. So they have self-taught themselves just so that they can understand how to this process of invention. The digital piece that's inside data and the IP factory, those are initiatives inside the firm. And what we're doing, as you can see by the service lines below, is we're actually, not only do we have a lot of, of uh, digital capability, obviously, as you would recognize, um, through the UX, but we're building what I would refer to, again, as a uh, business designer. So the Stanford programs, I've actually come up with my own program and my own design process and like that we're teaching all of the folks across the firm. So last year... Out of 700 tax people, I took 500 of them through design training to try to get them to understand how to work and to act differently. We're doing that across the firm. Audit um, was one of them that we had spent four years trying to shift the way that they actually address an audit. So it's been a fascinating exercise. They're not traditional um, designers trained in the profession of design. 
but they have a deep appreciation of it. They understand the methodologies, and they know that the way that they've always been solving problems isn't good enough anymore. So it's around how we build a bridge between the, the professional designers and the new designers, the, the hybrids, as I call them, uh, that we're building for them. But the real issue here is, is a mindset across the firm. So how do we actually move it from being a service function, which tends to be reactive to whatever the client wants, it tends to be very transactional, it tends to be very tactical, it tends to be very commoditized, okay? Um, it tends to be, at least in Deloitte, pretty siloed. So we have lots of different people, but they don't necessarily talk to one another, which is silly, but they just don't because they're so busy in the day-to-day that they don't communicate. They're project-focused, they're given something to do, and they will do it. And then they go forth and wait for the next project to show up, and then they will do that. They also tend to focus most of their time uh, based on time and materials. So that's how we go about our process of billing. It's time and materials. That's great, but that's the the definition of insanity. But that's another story. (laughs) We'll come back to that. And then what they tend to be in this service function is very trans, excuse me, I I said transactional, but it's very output-driven. My goal is to move to a future state. And the future state is where we're using design as a strategic initiative, a strategic function inside the organization. We're looking at engaging the designers, all the professional designers as well as the business designers, and have them become thinking partners with the rest of the organization. How do we get them to think together to make something better? It's around looking at having a much more integrated strategic offering. So bringing the pool of the talent together so we have a centralized capability and then we can use that capability to go off and do the kinds of work. And we can actually learn from one another rather than sticking to the silos that we hold so dearly. It's around being more collaborative, of course, and then looking at a portfolio. So rather than looking at one singular project, how do we actually have a more holistic view of the whole portfolio of things that we're working on? Which is ironic because designers are supposed to do that anyway. But once you get involved in the project, you kind of lose track of all the other stuff, and you just kind of phone in. And then it's moving from not just focusing in on the output, which is always important, but it's making sure that outcome is number one priority, and it's the level of quality that you're, um, that's going to be outstanding. So when I talk about my actual title inside of, of Deloitte, which since I wrote the job description, I could give myself my own title. So my title is I'm a principal for design leverage in the firm. So my good job is to do that, is to be able to look design as a tool and for differentiation. So I'll help, um, I support the guys that are doing all the brand work. Design is a process to invent. So how do I actually use design as a means to drive the innovation program and in many respects actually reinvent the innovation program? Um, design is a catalyst for change. How do we start looking at the culture, getting people to start working and interacting with one another in a different way that's in a more designerly way? I just to get on my soapbox, I absolutely deplore the word design thinking because it actually, when I started, <laughs> when I started working in Deloitte, I was told that I had to go out and go forth and talk about design thinking. And I said, no, I'm not going to do that because there's a lot of really bright people in this firm. And if I tell them they have to learn design thinking, that means I'm pretty much dismissing all the way they've been thinking up to this point in time. And for all practical purposes, they drive a better car and they have a bigger house than I do. So they must be doing something right. (laughs) So the whole notion around design thinking, I think, is a misnomer. One of the things, the thinking piece, 
I try to reframe it around think like a designer, and there's ways that designers think, so learn from that. There's also the ways that designers work. And separating the two allows people to actually have a better understanding of where they can fit into the process. I was not going to be able to change a culture inside of Deloitte or anyplace else if I, as I said earlier, went in and focused in on the way designers work. Because not everybody is going to be interested or inclined to do that and take up on a design project and learn more about the user and spend time going out and doing research. However, everyone can start thinking like a designer. It's just allowing that inner designer that's in everyone to come out. And if you take the position that what a designer is is someone who's trying to take a current situation and turn it into a preferred one, that's what makes you a designer. So even auditors are designers. So the whole point around changing this, using design as a means, as a catalyst for change, you have to be very careful as to how you label it and how you name it and then be very, um, very specific as to how you start driving a language and a vocabulary across the firm. And language, vocabulary, extraordinarily important to make the change happen from a culture standpoint. And then the last one around design, a strategy from transformation. So when I was back in the States in my own practice, I was a design leverage consultant. So I actually haven't really evolved all that much. I haven't, couldn't, haven't come up with a better name, so I just stick with that. But the, uh, the point is, it's still looking at all of the disciplines, all of the um, uh, dispositions around design, and where are those opportunities where you can simply leverage it, turn it into an asset and a value for the firm. There was a um, uh, research report that was talking about the unlocking the passion of the uh, explorer. And when you're working with a lot of accountants, they love metrics, so they get their numbers and it makes them happy. So I was very gratified to find out that apparently it is good business to invest in explorers, or as I would like to put it in parentheses, designers, because it actually helps you grow. It actually is profitable. The types of individuals that are noted as explorers are pretty much the same as you just get rid of the word explorer and put in uh, designer, but it's those types of people that will ultimately change the status quo or challenge the status quo. So the whole no notion of where I'm coming from and trying to make change happen inside of Deloitte is around understanding that problems can be unraveled. There's a thing around design that allows you to take apart a really sticky problem and actually start solving it in little bite-sized chunks and then in turn be able to start shaping new futures. I have to say, though, that this whole notion of this revolution or evolution, depending on how you look at it, is not for the faint-hearted. So most organizations, so I was in a workshop all afternoon around innovation. They were asking questions about what innovation was and how they could actually make their company more innovative. And it was pretty much the same conversation I had with an organization back in 1983. So they have not really, got, they're not really there yet. So for as many, thing, any, as many people have, that have evolved, <laughs> there's quite a few organizations and enterprises out there that really just haven't yet. So there's, let me just say for, for uh, the sake of it, there's plenty of opportunity. <laughs> Lots of firms need this uh, new ways of thinking. But the not for faint hearted, it goes two ways. It's not just for those organizations that need to be making an investment and start thinking about how they need to um, reshape and reform the way that they do business to be relevant in another, I don't know, maybe two years, five years from now. But it's for the design community themselves. The designers have to start thinking about that this is not going to be the toughest road, the road to take on because there are so many things changing. 
and it's around how we're actually preparing ourselves to step in to these uh, uncharted waters because we're building it and we're shaping it as we go. So one of my favorites is, if you're familiar with the acronym VUCA, uh, business guys just love acronyms. So this one, VUCA, is about volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. So this is the world we live in. Welcome to the 21st century. And we're surrounded by it. And it's actually not going to go away. It's only going to get more. But my stance on it is the fact, if you're just focusing in on the VUCA, then you're going to have to focus in on just reacting to it. So you're always going to be looking for ways to navigate around it and through it. But it doesn't mean you can't, that there's opportunity to actually take it one step farther, which is changing it around. Designers are really good at reframing, so go ahead and do it. Reframe it to vision, understanding, clarity, and agility. Those are the things that designers should be able to bring to their organizations, to their enterprises, to their clients. Those are the things that are actually prove the value. One of the things that I talked about time and materials as being a pricing issue, how do you actually change the conversation to the value that you're delivering versus how much, how much time and how many pieces of, uh, I don't know, whiteboard you're going to go through? <laughs> what I'm suggesting here is if we reshape and rethink the way that we approach problems in the world using this new way of looking at VUCA, we have actually the art of shaping things rather than just reacting to them. So just to bring it to a close, if I ruled the world, and I don't yet, although I, my husband again keeps reminding me that I think I do, but the, he's my reality check. If I ruled the world, these are the things that I would actually like to have my enterprise leaders work on. And I use the word enterprise because it doesn't make any difference if you're a small company, if you're a government organization, if you're a big uh, accounting firm. It's around finding balance. How do you look at all of the issues, all the austerity acts that you have to have, and how do you balance it with just a little bit of audacity? Have a notion of getting out there and be, uh, be brave and be bold. How do you actually get the word experience into CEO? So it's not just the executive officer, but it's the chief experience officer. And every, they don't have to be a UX person. They just have to be someone who cares about delivering a great experience, not only to their customers, but a great experience to every single person inside of their organization, inside of their enterprise. It's looking at getting rid of the other stuff, the extraneous stuff. There is an enormous amount of layers of systems and bureaucracies that are in even just the smallest of organizations that just get in the way of progress. There's a great book. And if you're in the mood to read something that's interesting around simplicity, it's called Insanely Simple. And I've used that uh, 10 tenets. It's around uh, Steve Jobs. It was written by the creative director that worked with him for about 15 years. And inside of Insanely Simple, he just talks about the 10 things that Steve Jobs always did. And I've used that repeatedly with all of my execs at one point or another because it just makes good sense. Recognize that play is actual real work. I talked about my husband. My husband used to play for the uh, NHL, so he was an ice hockey player for many years. Won five Stanley Cups. When he went to work, he actually said he was going to play. I think that makes good sense. <laughs> Again, it's the way you name things. So if we can actually have an opportunity where we're giving people the chance to design and shape their future, that is actually really clear. That's a lot of fun. And that's the play that I think we should all be instilling into our organizations. Now, from a designer standpoint, these are the things I would have you guys do. Leverage design as a compass. 
think of it, this is around leveraging the disposition as well as the methodologies themselves. It's around facilitating rather than communicating. Rather than just trying to keep telling people what it is they need to do and why they need to love design and why they need to believe in its value, it's actually help them facilitate their understanding. That's a different kind of conversation to have with them. Mentoring the next generation of business. It's not just mentoring the next generation of designers, but the business grads that you run into, they need help to help them cross the bridge over to creative thinking, introduce the right side of the brain to the left side of the brain. See the enterprise itself as an object of design. I rabbit on about this all the time. Because this, whether you're looking at leveraging design in any way, shape, or form, from strategy all the way through to culture, the entire enterprise is an object of design, which is why I absolutely believe I've got the best job in the world. And I have to say that because I wrote the job description. <laughs> but using and thinking through design is a catalyst for change, and that's what starts making, the, makes, starts making a difference. So is it evolution or revolution? I don't know. How many say it's evolution? Yeah. Revolution? Don't care. <laughs> I don't, I'm not entirely sure I'm, I'm convinced. I, I, my sense is only because I've been playing around in this space for 30 years, I think there's an evolution. I've just lived long enough to see enough happen that I believe that we could not be in the place that we're at here today. We would not be having the same kind of conversation if we didn't start the same conversations back 30 years ago, if not even before my time. But I'm, I can at least account for the last 30 so it is this evolution that is happening, but it's up to you to start revolutionizing what it is we're going to do about it. So it's your choice. You have brains in your head. You have feet in your shoes. You can choose, steer yourself any direction you choose. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Maureen. Um, the evolving revolution of design, I think, yeah, and, and this, this, um, this, this way that design is, is now uh, finding itself able to think about the enterprise as the material that it works with is, is fascinating. Um, thank you very much. My pleasure. This, this theme um, is, is something that's kind of sort of, uh, I suppose, prompted us to gather tonight uh, around how design plays in different places and, and what that might mean for people who are thinking about studying design um, and people who are thinking about their careers in design. Okay. So the, the next speaker um, I've known for quite a while and it's, it's been um, my great privilege to have worked with her in a number of different uh, organisations. Um, comes from a different side, I think, of the fence here. This is, this is someone who's come from psychology and anthropology. Okay, these are kind of words that was, we hear a lot more about in design these days. Um, and uh, someone who's now running one of the very interesting uh, and up-and-coming design firms in Australia, consultancies. Um, so, Jenna Devalda has uh, worked in a number of different uh, organisations. As a designer, a leader of design, uh, so with um, Leo Burnett, yeah, Orbitz, so back with the, the internet as a service, through then to Savannah College of Art and Design, so we have this, this educational kind of thread 
happening here as well, which I think is really interesting. Um, I was very lucky to work with Jana in the Interaction Design Association, where she was the president and uh, a director for a number of years, and really kind of shifted that organisation from, did we go from like sort of 50,000 to quite a lot more hundreds of thousands of members over the course of about two years. It's fascinating sort of shift in the way that design is playing in different fields. Um, I think Australia was very lucky that Jana chose to move here and start MELD in Sydney. Um, and uh, it's with great pleasure I'd like to ask Jana Devaldo to. Thank you. Just to wait. Ah, it's on. It's a whole 10 second wait. Hi. That was me in California. It was the best wedding ever at a farm, and the chicken came down the aisle as they were getting married. It was fantastic. That's not why I'm here. Hi. <laughs> so, thank you for that introduction, and thank you, Maureen, for that talk. I was nodding quite a bit, and I didn't mean to be so much clapping with the design thinking comment, but that's how I feel about it. So I'm here to talk to you today about embedding design and um, to really talk about how design is manifesting. So uh, Meld Studios uh, is a design firm that's five years old, uh, started with three of us and sort of this, this idea of, um, that's one of my, my co-founders, Ian. Um, we, we had this idea that um, we saw a lot of opportunity in Australia in terms of a lot of... Um, work that Ian and Steve, my other business partner, um, were being asked to do was quite large and complex and um, none of them could actually take it on as an individual designer and so they were freelancing at the time. And so um, the, the kinds of questions and opportunities that um, organizations were actually bringing to them were much larger than can you design a website. It was much more systematic um, strategic challenges that organizations were having and so um, it was quite an opportunity for us to both one create a firm that could actually tackle those types of, of challenges but also to design the place that we would want to work and so it was really fantastic um, so I encourage everybody to start their own company just as you designed your own role um, in as much as you can because um, it became for us a way around you know, we actually, um, our mission has always been from the very beginning to use design to improve people's lives. And so um, our mission wasn't to design websites, our mission wasn't to design strategies, it's to improve people's lives. And so I think in keeping that framing for us as a company quite broad, it actually gives us the space to play around, well, how might we actually do that? Um, so. To me, when I say we're a design firm, um, people might automatically think that, well, that means that you're consultants, like you sort of design consultants and you just do projects. And I think, well, actually, no, we're actually more than that. And we're keeping our mission quite broad because that might be one way in which we're actually um, improving people's lives today by working with our organizations that actually so much of our lives are intertwined with the organizations around us. Think about government and infrastructure and the bank and the school and everything is something that you need to interact with and, and there's an organization behind it and so one way that we're doing that is through working with these organizations but 
that's not the only way that you can do this. And so we're trying to keep quite broad. And so what I'd like to do today is to sort of talk to you about the ways in which design is manifesting for us or how we're actually um, meeting this mission. But to tell you some stories sort of from the ground around um, what are some of the challenges that organizations are coming to us with. Some of the spaces in which we're actually working in are quite unusual or, or not typical to where you might think design might be sort of playing, which in some sense, you know, when you think about marketing, of course, design's there. When you think about product, you know, design should be there. But I'm talking about IT, you know, you're talking about the auditors, that design can actually be in a lot of spaces. So I want to talk to you about that as well. So um, some different flavors. And this is probably the largest way in which we're, we're sort of meeting our mission. Um, so designing with. And the way I talk about that is that um, organizations come to us with a particular idea or challenge, and we're actually taking them down the journey of design. So we are a partner to them. We are creating with them. And the, the role that we actually play in this is that, one, we are the experts in design and the design process um, and all of that entails. They are the experts in their domains of expertise. So if we're doing something in financial services, we are not financial service experts. They are. If we're doing something with transportation, we need them to be coming in. And so the thought is that we're coming in as the experts of the design process, um, but we're also not agnostic in, we're not just facilitating the process for them to, to do things, we're actually creating with them. So we are bringing a different way of thinking and a different mindset. And the, the thing that's really interesting about this for me is that the object of design, to, to, to think about what uh, Maureen was just talking about, is it doesn't matter what the object is. So somebody might come to us and say, um, we are about to invest $30 million in a new um, uh, customer relationship management system, CRM system. But we don't want to do that just blindly because we know that however that system is, that will impact the customer experience that we create. So can you help us understand our customer's journey and what experience we want it to be. Yes. Um, we want to transform the way that we work into a designerly way. Can you help us redesign our organization and how we work? Yes. Um, State Library of Victoria, your, your library here. Um, we want to change the way that our services, um, we want to change the way that we deliver services to the visitors and to the citizens because we don't think we're actually delivering the services that we need to be delivering. Can we do that? Yes. And the thing is, is that you become known for designing particular types of objects, right? So you become known for, oh, you're the people who can do the customer journey stuff. Oh, you're the people who can do the service design. Oh, you're the people that can design the website. And the thing that's nice and challenging about those sort of different sort of spaces is that, um, as a business owner, you kind of come into a, a space where you say, well, do I want to start advertising myself as we are a service design firm, that's what we do, or we do web design, or we do strategic design, and that's, as a business owner, is quite, sorry, quite challenging in terms of how do I play into the market and how, how people understand what we do. So there's a tension for us in terms of, I don't want to limit ourselves into what, what we actually design, 
um, while also I need to get people to understand what we could possibly design for them. So that's our, our challenge there. Holly, that's you. <laughs> so design for us is manifesting, obviously, in, in sort of different ways. This is a piece from the, the State Library of Victoria. So in this sense, we were looking at all of the services of the, the State Library, and so it kind of is manifesting in um, how do we, um, the thing that's true, that, that's consistent about the way that we're working in design with this in, in project spaces is really around its visual, it always starts with understanding and, and um, that, research, that research side. It's always generative. It's always visual. Um, it's always iterative. It's always evaluative. So there's some key principles that are true no matter what the actual project is. Um, and the thing about sort of being known for these things is that then other companies start to see, sort of map a need that they have to what you, to what you do. Um, a lot of times when we're actually designing, um, to uh, Maureen's point around sort of that very project-focused thing, um, that's, a, that's a huge challenge for us in terms of um, the minute you just become sort of a, a, a menu log for somebody to come and say, I want one of those. Can I have a map? Can you make me a map? Um, it completely changes what you are delivering and offering. Um, and it's not the kind of company that we want to be. I never want to deliver the same map twice. I never want to deliver a map if it's not the right thing to deliver. And so the way that we always are taking on these projects are a couple of things. One is we're developing a relationship with these customers. Um, even though we're starting with a project, um, most of our clients become repeat, repeat, repeat because we get to know them, they trust us, it's all in sort of, um, we become just an extension of them rather than a, oh, can you go and do that for us? And so Building relationships is a really key, critical part to, to this. Um, but it's also um, that even though the design process is the thing that doesn't change, the activities that you might do within it, um, the outputs that you might create, you have to constantly be pushing yourself to not get stuck into the rut of, okay, I'll just use my little object library and I'll just build that map again because it's faster and I don't need to think about it. So you have to constantly push yourself, and especially as, a, as somebody who's really interested in this and, and, and loves it, I need to be constantly pushing, pushing how we actually do the practice. And so highly recommend that you do that as well. That was one of the, the larger maps. But the thing about taking, taking our clients through a design process is that um, sometimes they're very busy and they, they, they really appreciate design, but they're not really interested in being sort of in it um, fully. So you have to find the point, points where it's sort of critical for them to be there. But sometimes they want to go through the design process because they actually are interested in being designerly themselves or finding a way to actually apply design beyond the project. So depending upon who we're working with, sometimes they, they want to learn by osmosis and they want to sort of be, be who you are. And I think one thing I would also note around us creating our own company um, and I would, I would imagine that this is probably the same for you, Maureen, and, and, and Deloitte as well, is that you, you have to model the way of working that you are basically trying to embed within these organizations. So the way that MELD works and functions as an organization, we sort of hold as a model for how we're, we're trying to work with them. So I think there's, a, there's something about um, exhibiting sort of what you're trying to achieve there. 
Another thing we do is teach design, and not to take away from Jeremy or any of the other professors in here, because we certainly do not do what you do. Um, it's very much, we might teach a broad brushstroke around what the whole design process is, or we might teach um, how to use the design process to get to a particular outcome. So it, maybe it is about customer journey mapping, or um, maybe it is around um, understanding your current service and the opportunities that you have to redesign it. So it's, it's, it's around doing workshops, doing um, finding ways for people to get out of their enterprise sort of uh, rut daily way of working and experiencing something new. Now for us, this actually ends up being quite a big business um, demand generator for us. It's quite interesting. So people will come, they'll do this process, and then they'll say, oh, can you come and work with us and our company and doing something else? So um, it's been quite an interesting way to both um, ex explore and um, expand our, our reach. We also do a lot of formal and informal mentoring about design. And so when, I, when it's about this, it's around sometimes we're meeting organizations who are trying to build their own design capability within their organizations. And so we, don't need to we need to help them sort of traverse the complicated landscape of how do you actually make that happen. And so um, we talk about the way that we work, but we also talk about the landscape of business and, um, and how do you actually tackle that very complex issue. And whether it's they're building the design capability as a team or they're trying to make people be designerly in the way that they work. Some of the time that's just around, let's have regular coffees and let's actually make that happen. We also facilitate aspects of design. And so, and I, I, I differentiate facilitate to designing with because I think it's important because we might get a call from somebody that says, look, we've just gone through this whole process with you know, our 80 sales, 80 people group sales force and we want to give them a, an opportunity to do some ideation. And so it's not necessarily that those ideas are going to go anywhere specifically yet, but they need somebody who can come in and actually do it in a different way. So it's not just a brainstorming and let's, let's just write some things down. They, they appreciate the design process, but they want just a point in time for that. So we can actually come in and do that. And we find that that's actually quite a good uh, sort of foot in the door with some companies who aren't quite sure how to both take on projects that are, that are sort of um, with design. Um, they appreciate the applicability of how aspects of design or methods might work, but they're not ready for the whole thing yet. But we find that like with some of our organizations that we work with, um, we do many of these different things. So it's not just a singular, we do projects or we do um, particular aspects. This was me pulling from my object library that I was just making fun of earlier around making maps, but I love our little object library. Um, this one's a really interesting space and I think is very ripe for more exploration. Managing design, so be the design function for an organization. So advertising agencies such as Leo Burnett have had this model down pat for, for eons where they become the agency of record for an organization when it comes to marketing and advertising. Now, organizations go to a company like that because they're in 
shipping or transportation, they're never going to necessarily want to build up that capacity or capability in-house. They partner with somebody else to do that, and they become an extension of the organization. And so the question becomes, well, what does that look like for somebody like us, who's not necessarily in those traditional spaces of being an agency of record? Um, we're doing this with one organization, one part of, a, an, part of the IT organization, actually, which is quite interesting, um, where they're not, they're nowhere near design, they have nowhere near design capacity or capability um, within their organization. They look to us, they, they call us in to then do, you know, we're on, um, what do you call that when you're, retainer, retainer, that's what that is, when you're on retainer, so you're not necessarily, you know, when, you, when, you're, when you're setting up for projects and proposals, they're very much a, it's for 12 weeks and it's to this outcome where a retainer is, you are just working with us, you know, for six months, 12 months, you know, two years, and we don't have specific outcomes set, but you are doing the design aspect of the work for us. And this is a really interesting model um, because in the process of doing that, you're showing them how to be designerly. And the thing about this, or actually with any of my work that I say to my clients, I say, my goal is to design my way out of your organization. I want you to not need me. I want you to be solving problems in this way. Because I actually believe that working in a designerly way is just the way that work should be done, full stop. Um, so that would be my goal here. Um, there's something also here around, um, well, I'll get to that. We also, um, you don't think of this as sort of a paid thing, and it's, it's not, but I think it's, critical in terms of our mission around how do we improve people's lives is that we, we believe that by getting the word out about design, having critical conversations about it, and, and actually riffing on what, what design is, we're actually making it better and then making the outcome better as well. So getting to the what's next, um, and this is my last slide, I promise. Um, what's next for us, I would say, that's quite dark, isn't it? So I'm going to go back because it feels more... <laughs> I, don't know. I feel better. Um, I think it's interesting to talk about the spaces and places that we play in. Um, we do an enormous amount of work with sales organizations. What does, what does the future of sales look like? Um, we're doing a lot of work with, um, with IT organizations, and not in the traditional ways that you might think. We're helping them to redesign the way that they function internally the way that they function with their business so that they're not just transactional, but they're also strategic partners, so modeling to them how to work. Um, and I think that there's um, also, when it comes to innovation, we're doing some really interesting things around um, we are managing a company's innovation fund. And the reason why they brought us in to manage the innovation fund that, that was given to them by this other organization was because both of them weren't really knowing how to take advantage of it. And so we've set up this whole governance of innovation, because big companies love the word governance. It makes them feel comfortable <laughs> that, that actually something's going to happen. Um, but we're actually designing, well, how do you manage innovation? And what does that look like? And how do we constantly reflect on, on that? And how do we actually get the momentum going? And, and how do we identify the opportunities and actually get traction for this and actually bring things to life? And so. It's spaces and places that I never would have imagined that we would be playing in. Um, 
But that's why I like to keep our mission broad because um, there's a lot that we can be learning around um, how sales organizations or how large organizations partner with each other, how they mash things up. And I think we need to think about design in that way as well, around that we can be manifesting design in very different ways than we might be traditionally thinking about them as well. So that is what's next. And that is the end. And that's all. Thank you, Jenna. Pleasure. Okay, so we're going to s switch formats now, um, and uh, I hope you brought questions. Were you taking notes? Yeah? Um, so we're going to switch formats into a panel kind of format. Now I'll introduce the, the next two members of our panel. Um, Maggie McGuire. Am I allowed to call you Mother Inferior? Yes. Yeah? It, it, I mean, you refer to yourself as Mother Inferior. Mother exterior. Exterior. Um, <laughs> Maggie is CEO of the Abbotsford Convent Foundation, um, and you've been there for 10 years, inherited a rather interesting brief, um, which we may get to hear about, we'll see. But um, one of the interesting things I found out about Maggie today is that she's got two tenets that I think are, are really kind of um, mean a lot here. One is about uh, oh, collaborate or die. Yes. Yeah. Collaborate or die, uh, it's COD or COD. POD. COD or POD. Yeah, yes. point of difference. And point of difference. And, and um, earlier when you registered, some of you definitely were asking about this point of difference, which is another kind of theme that I sort of heard coming up here as well. Like how, do we, how do we kind of differentiate these kinds of services as they start to, we see these different fields kind of moving into this similar kind of space. So this is an interesting thing that we will get to talk about. Um, okay, um, and Kate Kennedy. Kate Kennedy is the program manager of our Master of Fashion Entrepreneurship. Okay, so this is a program that's kind of like an MBA for fashion designers, yeah? And, um, and, and again, we see this hybrid space that we're, we're moving into here um, around, I suppose, spaces where we might have thought about creativity as being the thing that you might come and learn at university and instead we're kind of taking people who are very creative and helping them to maybe become more valuable and strategic in different places, yeah? Um, yes, Jeremy, and also people who aren't necessarily from design backgrounds are attracting as well to the, the fashion industry because there are a number of opportunities for people to learn design thinking via fashion um, we're attracting to our program. Excellent. Okay, so can you please uh, welcome Kate and Maggie and Maureen and Jenna. Um, to... So the, the way we'll be doing this is that we have two, one, one, one helper, um, thank you, and who is fast, apparently, um, who, with a roving mic, okay? So um, I'm going to just be the person who says yes, 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 yes. So has, first of all, I'm going to kick it off with a question that kind of leads us out of that, and it's about this differentiation thing, and then we will start with some questions from the audience. So um, I was very interested to hear the way that um, Maureen and Jenna, you both talked about these, uh, I suppose, uh, moving into spaces and helping to create capacity inside those spaces. And there's one of the things I think that's, that's interesting here is about, well, then what happens, how do you do yourself out of clients. So I'm, I was speaking with um, someone from Deloitte last night talking about, there's a term, clipeditor, 
inside the, in the organization where you kind of, you're so good at what you do, they're no longer a client anymore, they're sometimes actually a competitor. Could you kind of just think about that for a second? I mean, what, what, what are your thoughts there? Okay, so back in the day, <laughs> uh, I remember um, having a, it was actually a forum a lot like this, and there was this new thing called desktop publishing that was coming out. There was, there was this evil company called um, Apple, and they were coming up with a, this new technology inside this new computer, and all of the graphic designers that I was talking to felt that they were going to be out of a job because the computer was going to make designers irrelevant and immaterial. And I remember thinking to them at the time, well, I think that's fairly short-sighted, and maybe technically you should get another job, um, because if you have that sort of closed mind and thinking, then you shouldn't be a designer in the first place, but then I get critical about that sort of thing. Um, but the, the point was that they had this such a narrow framing about what it was that they stood for and what it was they did, they missed out the fact that there is actually a new tool to play with that even if folks started doing their own desktop publishing, they're going to discover that they're pretty crappy at it, which meant that they were going to actually need designers even more, but then they've justified it to themselves because they just proved they really have no idea what they're doing. So it's, I'm not particularly fussed. I love the opportunity to build in my own obsolescence because that means I have left some advocates for design out there that will hopefully spread the love, and there will be always more <laughs> to start bringing through the journey. So that's why it is handy to be old. Here, here. Here, here? Yeah. Here, here. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a it's, thing, right? Oh, yeah. it, the minute you start being protectionist um, about your little parcel of land, that you're instantly putting up walls and um, closing off what you're even capable of doing. So. We've discussed uh, new program opportunities, and I um, posed the idea that we could just call anything 3D printing, and everyone would come yeah. because it's this concept of 3D printing. So, our questioning is it a new bread maker? It's what can you do with it, and how are you going to use it to reform the world? Yeah. I remember going to a presentation at Art Center when they were introducing this new thing called the 3D printer, and it was a printer about half the size of this room. It was massive. But it, and it, had like, it made this like little thing. We all stood there and went, ooh. It was so cool. And now the 3D printers are this big. <laughs> it's just amazing. So why don't we talk about mindset for a second? Because this was another kind of theme, I think, that emerged. Um, and, and let's just think about, like, sort of... Maggie, yeah? let's, let's think about um, this point of difference in collaboration or die, yeah? What, is, what kind of mindset is needed here? I think tenacity is pretty important. Mm -hmm. um, when I went to the convent 10 years ago, um, it was a ghost town. There was no one there. It was 6.8 hectares, 11 heritage buildings, and a, a dream in some people's minds. Um, and the first uh, reality was it, it was not allowed to have any government funding. Now, there's no other cultural institution in this country that operates with those rules. So I had to start from minus zero. Um, and you know, partnerships and, and opportunities were important. Really celebrating the point of difference we had in this extraordinary asset became incredibly important as well. If you've got the only freaking one in the country, 
then <laughs> that's a very good place to start. So I've just kind of picked out the, the, the extraordinary bits and celebrated those as much as I can. Um, and I think that's what's given us an edge and has made us so popular. I was just saying to Maureen before, who hasn't been there, by the way. Sorry. But she is from Sydney, so that's sort of all right. I'm very sure. <laughs> um, ten years down the track, we get a million visitors a year. I mean, that's pretty extraordinary when you think about we're doing that with no government money. But what we're doing is thinking outside the box every second of the day. Mm -hmm. So, so how, have you, um, how have you helped to build the organisation into that? What, what is it you think you've done or you've needed to do to build that kind of organisation? I'm the geriatric in the organisation. <laughs> um, and most of my team have double or triple degrees in arts or design or conservatory. So they're all people who are passionate about arts, culture, learning. They're the best um, and I make sure they stay the best. So they're all also doing other courses and doing pottery classes at night and because they're interested, they're engaged, they're out there, they're thinking. We have hilarious conversations all day long. Some days we actually do some work in amongst playing. But most of our thinking, most of our dialogue, most of our rhetoric is about how do we do it better and how do we have a good time at the same time. Because mm -hmm. sometimes it's rough, you know, the world isn't easy. And when you are operating in a very fragile economy and you're always trying to think about the next buck, we've got to balance the next buck against maintaining an artistic and cultural environment which is healthy and nurtured. So I, I juggle and am nimble all day long and I spend all day arguing with my coup the chief operating officer, who is a man in a suit, who is rightly worried about the money. <laughs> and we've done that Maya Briggs thing, you know, when you look at the personalities, he's there. <laughs> and somewhere in the middle we are running the organisation and we're generating three million bucks a year and then we spend, I spend, three million bucks a year. <laughs> so let's, let's talk about diversity then. Okay, so, so Jaya, Maureen, Kate... How are, we, how are we thinking about diversity in the kinds of fields where we're working? Well, particularly within the fashion industry, it is a, it's totally a global industry, so the program at the moment has... We have over 64% international students, so we have a very diverse um, cohort of students, which is fantastic. Um, and Ooh. mind you, it's our international students are the people being employed, so it's... Um, it is about that, because they're very resilient, they're living in another country, so for us in the program it's being able to um, trade on that level of difference and being able to foster that within our students because it's a very rich, it's a very rich cohort that we're able to build. Yeah. So it's very important. I know some of you had questions earlier, so do you, Leah? Mm -hmm. oh, hi. Please, could we, could we maybe get the, the mic so that we could, everyone else can hear? Um, if you do have a question, just, just raise your hand and, um, and we'll come And around. can they tell us who they are and why they're here or something? So we've got a Please. context? Yes. yes. Hello, my name's Leah. I'm from RMIT University. Um, very involved in transdisciplinary design. But I had a, um, a question or a comment for Jana, and it was around the idea of, uh, I guess, your motivation as design as something to improve life mm. and how do you assess the impact of that motivation within your clients uh, I guess what's the the type of feedback that you get from your clients do you feel like you're on track with that aim to improve life that's a great question um, 
And what's interesting for me is, uh, just in, when you asked that, I, I just had this reflection of, do we actually tell them that that's our mission? Because it's not their mission necessarily in bringing us in, right? So we have a reason for being, and they have a reason for being. And um, kind of in a way, it's sort of a, it's not selfish, but we, you know, we believe that design is a, can, can improve people's lives. Topically, it's up to us to decide, do we want to work with that organization and what they represent, and is that something that we want to affiliate with? Um, and we've made some hard decisions in the past to say, you know, actually, that we can't find any way, shape, or form justify working with, with your kind of an organization or what you represent. Um, those are hard conversations because, yeah, that's hard, and that's a whole, you need alcohol and We'll talk about that later. Um, but the, the, the thing for, for me is when we, when we actually look at it, so you might say, well, how does helping a sales organization actually improve people's lives? And I think sometimes we think about improving people's lives as sort of like they're happy and they're healthy and they're drinking and eating and it's, you know, it's, it's people who are, um, you know, it's sort of the design for good um, sort of construct and it's sort of, it's, it's not with big organizations, it's, it's sort of elsewhere. And I guess I think I'm thinking about the salesperson is a human who has to do a really hard job and has a family and like how do I make their work life better and how do we make um, the person who's, um, you know, the librarian's life easier and how do I make the citizen who's coming in life better and so I, I kind of break it down a little bit and I think about, um, it's not just about the moment, it's about that's sort of the whole environment. Yeah. Can I ask one more? So um, the other thing I'd like to ask about to the whole panel is I've been thinking a lot uh, recently about the idea of design as a transformational process. Mm. And uh, Mihai Chicks and Mihai talks a lot about this idea of the transformational process that you go through. Um, and I wonder if someone would like to, to take that up as an idea as design of design as a transformational process that you emerge different <coughs> at the end of this process. A beautiful butterfly. I can give one real quick one. Um, I've got a lot, but one that comes immediately to mind. The transformation doesn't necessarily have to be huge. It can be very small. Yeah. <laughs> and it can be very small in just the way people's shift from the way they always used to do something to the, a new way of doing things. So I had a group of about, um, uh, <clears throat> I was walking through the office a, a few months back and I saw a group of young people all working on a proposal. So each of them were sitting at their, at their little desk, all diligently working on their little laptops. And they were all working on the same proposal, but none of them were actually talking to one another. And there was, there was about seven of them. So I was, because they were all really intense looking at the, at the laptop and just beavering away, you know, hitting the keys. So I asked one of them what it was they were doing. This, we're, we're, we're all working on a proposal. And I said, well, you're all working on the same proposal? Yeah, we're, we're in a really big hurry and we've, or there's a real rush on it. And we just found out about it today and it's due in two days and we've got to get, put all these elements together. I said, okay, so why, what is it each of you working on? Well, we've divided up the proposal and we're each do, taking our own element. We're just working on that. I said, okay. So I stopped. <laughs> so I, they all stopped and they all thought I was strange. I said, bring up your laptops and we're going to go to this new space that we created called The Source. And The Source is nothing more than just a room with lots of whiteboards. But it was a very new concept <laughs> at the time. 
and they, I brought them in, and I said, now what I'd like you to do is, each of you up on the whiteboard, just write your element of what it is you're focusing in on for your proposal. So they took about 15 minutes, and they just sort of wrote up their, their parts and their pieces, and I was bigger than most of them and older than most of them, so they had to do what I told them to do. So they were not particularly happy because I was taking away from their laptop time, <laughs> their typing time, so they were a little offended by that. But they started putting up all of their different elements of the proposal they were working on. And I said, okay, now step back. And they saw that each of them were working really hard on one thing, and half of them were doing somebody else's job. There was so much redundancy, and there was so much replication, and there was so much um, ill thinking that was going on. But each of them were doing the very best they could, but they didn't actually talk to one another. So I said, I will come back in an hour, and I want you to go through this proposal, and I want you to reframe it and rethink it and make it better. Because to you, does it look good now? And they all said no, and I think we're, we're all at cross purposes. Came back in an hour, and the energy that was in the room was electric. They were so excited. They were building, they were using the whiteboards to be able to put their ideas up there and then build on those ideas. I mean, a basic design concept, but this is something they had never done before. They always worked on their laptop in isolation. So the energy was screaming. They were just having a good old time. There was laughter coming out of it that they, please believe me, they were not laughing before. <laughs> um, then they came back with a proposal that was starting off to be around 20 pages long, knocked it down with real clear, concise thinking down into four pages. They got down to what it is they needed to talk about. It made sense, and all of a sudden, they were really excited and proud. Did they transform the organization? No. Did they transform the way that they're doing proposals going forward, the way they collaborated with one another? Yes. So transformation, there's this expectation as something big, there's always fireworks that go off and you know, there's a, you know, the clouds open up and the sunshine comes down and <laughs> happens. It doesn't. It's lots and lots of little things that leads up to a transformation. Can I pick up on that for a second? And I'm just going to take my phone over here because I think it might be the thing that's making that sound. Um, that... Um, one of the things that's really striking me here as well with, with the stories that we have about design tonight um, is that design and learning are merging. Or learning is becoming a part of what design does inside different places where it works. And, um, and to me then, this, this idea of transformation, even just little tiny ones, but this ability to see the world differently and to see the world, say, through a different lens or through different eyes, um, but some, in some way change yourself is a key part of the capability for anyone working in the creative fields or in design today. So hopefully if you have enough small, um, small little transformations, it actually adds up to a big one. So that's kind of nice. Um, but as far as the learning piece, I started out as a bartender. I mean, that's how I managed to get myself through school. So I spent, the guys that used to come into the saloon were all from Xerox and from Kodak and from Cybron, all these big technology companies and the like. And I spent all of my time after in between slinging beers, <laughs> making gin and tonics and the like, I was explaining to people what industrial designers were and what it is we did. So the whole, you're always, it's a combination of always learning but always teaching at the same time. And particularly if you're really excited about your subject, you're going to share that with anybody who will listen anyway. <laughs> so, yes, we have a, a question here. 
feedback may be you, actually. You're too close to the celebrity. This is a question for Maureen. Um, my name's Caroline. I work for an organisation called Deluxe Entertainment Group, which is a global, a global media and entertainment company. Um, we've gone through a process over the last five years since film has died completely in our industry <laughs> and we've turned 100% digital. The organisation headed up in New York has acquired several businesses around the globe, all creative services businesses, and perhaps they believe that's enough just to buy them. So as a smaller player in Australia, what's your advice to me to influence uh, design and innovation from the ground up to try and help that business succeed and survive? Holy moly. <laughs> uh, so, is, is a, you're, so you're a business owner of this firm here in Australia now, and you're trying to influence the, the, the uh, parent company back in the States? That's right. Without weaponry? <laughs> yes. Because they're our American. That's right. <laughs> okay. um, month to month. <laughs> through uh, not really familiar I, I, as I said I've got lots of friends in the film industry because I live in I'm from LA and from New York um, and it's always been a, a, an industry that's been very um, interesting because it's always been evolving and changing and, and morphing into something new but it's one of the one of the more agile industries actually which is, I think, really fascinating. They have this, if it's not working this way, they'll just figure out how to get around it. So as far as having a, a way of influencing, part of it begins with just having a point of view. A point of view on this is the direction I absolutely believe we need to go in. This is how I think we can make it happen. So come along with me and help me make it better. So as far as, it's not that you're going to be able to force them to do anything that they're not overly inclined to do, but I think... It's in the, the way that you express yourself and the leadership that you have within your, your expression. It's not about you know, command and control. It really is about you believing in it and then going forward. I don't know if that answers your question, but it's, there's, um, it's amazing just how much influence you can have over people and, and bring them to your way of thinking if you actually believe in what it is you're doing and they will and bring them into it um, as part of the conversation you're having with them. So one of the things is, is we talk, you hear a lot about conversation, you hear a lot about communication, but there's a, there's a fundamental difference between the two. There's a lot of organizations, mine as, as well, as we have a whole communications department. What that usually means is that someone has built a number of messages, they created some kind of value off-site, and then they're going to push it out into the organization. When you're having a conversation, you're actually creating that shared value to begin with. So it's, it's having conversations with your colleagues versus communicating. Mm -hmm. and it's, but inside of those conversations, you're sharing your point of view and then building on it from there. We are not traditional conservative in any way, shape or form. You clearly haven't been there. <laughs> you're right there, yeah. The, the corporate sector in the main is scared of the NFPs because they do do it on a dollar fifty, and they just don't understand how they do it and they do it well. And I don't think the not-for-profit sector has ever really found a way to have a proper dialogue with the corporates. I have that challenge sometimes at the, at, even at the convent um, where men in suits run screaming back to their car because they just can't understand how the hell we're keeping this ship alive. 
because it doesn't match any business model, any way of thinking that they encounter in their daily lives. I just figure that's their fucking loss. Mm-hmm. Yes, but your auditors are from Deloitte. Yeah. <laughs> and they're very nice. They do it low burner. Yeah, they <laughs> But they probably do wear suits. Yeah, they do. I'm trying to Without ties. Yeah. Ooh, they're radical. When they come to see me. Yeah, good. <laughs> well, actually, that's an important point. So one of the, the issues when you're trying to, to step into this space is actually understand who the person is that you're interacting with. So I believe that if they're talking to a variety of other folks, they actually have those ties on and tied up really tight. So it's actually having a, a deeper understanding and appreciation of where they're coming from. So even though they're, they're uh, still in a suit, they're making the effort because of the space that they're stepping into yeah. and the people yeah. they're talking to. So that's, that's actually just being conscientious and understanding who those individuals are. It's, and it's fundamental to designers. It's always understanding when you put the person or the, the stakeholder in the center of everything that you do, then you're always going to be just that much more conscientious make sure that you're asking about them. And the, the best way to get, and this actually I learned as a bartender, the best way to get a tip was if you got the person to talk about themselves. You didn't have to spend that much time. All you had to do was you know, nod and look like you're really appreciated. And then they leave 25 cents, fuck, you know, they really felt that you were listening to them. But the, real, the, the fundamental nature of it, though, is, is making sure that you are asking the person once you have an understanding of what they are trying to accomplish, what their, their sense of what's possible, or what their actual need or, or um, expectations are, then you can work backwards from that. So it's all about good communications. Yeah. No conversation. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. I know that you all have questions because I have a list of them here. Um, but we're now going to go to the alcohol. Okay, so that will probably help the questions to, to emerge, I imagine. Um, so could you please uh, join me in thanking our speakers for this evening? So do we, do you want to... I forgot to mention that we're, um, we're opening a studio in Melbourne. Yeah. So, come talk to me. <laughs>